There was a new Guinness World Record that was set this week. Did you hear about this? Uh, the Guinness Book of World Records has crowned a new hottest chili pepper in the world. Got any chili heads in here? Um, pepper X has now dethroned the Carolina Reaper after 10 years of being the hottest pepper. Uh, the same guy, the breeder and grower, Ed Curie, created both peppers. Um, for comparison, a habanero pepper is about 100,000 Scoville heat units. Pepper X measured <laughs> way beyond that. Um, in 1912, pharmacist Wilbur Scoville invented the Scoville scale, which measures how many times capsation, which is the chemical element in a pepper that makes it spicy or hot, has to be diluted to be neutral. Um, and in lab tests at Winthrop University in South Carolina, Pepper X registered an average of 2.69 million Scoville units, a million more than the Carolina Reaper, which was at 1.64. <laughs> Mr. Curie is one of only five people in the world to have eaten an entire Pepper X. He told the Associated Press, this is true, you can't make this up. Quote, I was feeling the heat for three and a half hours. Then the cramps came. <laughs> the cramps are horrible. I was laid out flat on a marble wall for approximately an hour in the rain, groaning in pain. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. He did it to himself. Like, now, do you suppose at any point in that four or five hour ordeal that someone came up to him and they were like, well, you must be fit for this since God won't give you more than you can handle. You know? <laughs> have you heard that? Have people ever said that to you? I'm sure you have. And probably at the worst possible time of your life, right? Like, nobody ever says that when things are going great. Jesus has called us to live at peace with one another, right? He has commanded in the Sermon on the Mount to turn the other cheek. But there is nothing that makes me want to punch somebody in the throat harder than them saying that, right? It, I, I mean, I know, like, it just, it's this instant kind of reaction. You're just ready to fire. You know, it's awful when someone, and especially if they, if they say it to me, one, whatever, I can handle it. If they say it to someone I love who's going through a hard time, I really have to fight the urge to just punch them. It's because that, it is junk theology at its worst. I'm really glad you're, you're with us today. Thanks for being here in the room. Thanks for watching online. One thing to let you know about, just kind of dovetailing on what Shauna said, we, we are going to have to have uh, trunk or treat inside. Uh, not what we planned ultimately, originally, but the whole point of this is to invite people into a relational environment where we can talk to them, right? So it's actually a little easier inside. So maybe God is actually giving us what we really want, even if we didn't know. Um, so that's tonight. Uh, yeah, yeah, bring who, who you want to bring. After this service, if some of you would be willing uh, at the conclusion of the 11 o'clock service to head down to Fellowship Hall, we need to like move the walls and, and start set up already for that. It, it, we weren't plan we're planning on being outside. We need to move some stuff around and make that happen. So if you're free and you can help after our service, uh, head down to Fellowship Hall that way and, uh, and, and give us a hand moving the walls around to get ready uh, for tonight. That would be, that'd be really helpful. Thank you. Uh, we're concluding our series called Junkyard Theology today, 
And we, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about some of the bad and dumb and just generally unhelpful stuff that, that people you know, say, and, and this one is a doozy, right? Like, you, you probably heard this, God won't give you more than you can handle. It's almost, we started the series by talking about the idea, you know, that everything happens for a reason, right? This is kind of the other side of the coin. It's kind of looking at it from a different angle. And, and so today we're talking about this idea that God won't give you more than you can handle. <laughs> You, you hear that and you go, uh, really? Are, are you sure? Because I'm pretty sure that there are some people in the Bible who would beg to differ with that. I, I'm guessing Job would take exception to that cliche, right? So would Joseph, son of Jacob in the Old Testament. Hagar, Tamar, Hannah, I, I don't think they agree with that. You probably could throw Elijah and Jonah and Jeremiah in there too. And oh my goodness, you better put Hosea on that list. Remember Hosea's story? Turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. Now in order to understand Hosea's story, you need a little context. This is sometime prior to 750 BC, okay? There is a power vacuum in, in Syria, the country north of Israel. By this point, Israel has split into two different countries. You have Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Judah generally tended to follow what God's word said. Israel in the north had just almost totally abandoned uh, any kind of notion of God's covenant. And, but the, it was a political and economic boom time. Because of this power vacuum, uh, King Jehoshaphat II had expanded the kingdom almost to what it was under King Solomon. It was, it was good times, right? But here's the weird thing. So you have a very few rich people who are very rich, and you have a lot of poor people who are very poor, but it doesn't matter, rich or poor, it, it, it really, everybody has just kind of abandoned the covenant with God. And they, they've gone after, and they're having this, this religious, adulterous affair with idols. Rich or poor, doesn't matter. Everybody has just kind of walked away from God. And in the midst of this, they, they've forsaken their relationship with God to have this affair with idols, and it's into that situation that God calls the prophet Hosea. Hosea preached for 40 years that God loved the people even though they did not love him. And more than his preaching, though, God called Hosea to live out as an enacted parable that rejection. So let's look at this together. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reigns of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So everything that follows is God's revelation to this prophet. When the Lord first began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. 
Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. The southern kingdom existed for a hundred years or so beyond um, the northern kingdom. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. That's the promise he made to Abraham. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And I wish we had time to go into chapter 2 today. It's this masterpiece of Hebrew poetry. There's this incredible chiasm that's happening there. And just structurally, what Hosea is doing, it's absolutely beautiful. But to really do it justice, we'd be here till like trunk or treat starts. And I'm not going to do that to you. So it just I'll save that for another time. It's beautiful. Chapter 2 describes this wonderful time of God's restoration of his people. Let's look, let's carry on Hosea's story. Look at chapter 3. The Lord said to me, go... Show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Now we read that and we go, what in the world? Our sacred raisins, I mean, I like raisins, but come on. Um, it, it, was, it was part of Israel's idol worship. Like they would, at, the, at the shrine temple or whatever, they would hand these things out. And eating this thing was actually part of worshiping false gods. And, and what he's saying there is they've, they've walked away from me and they actually really enjoy worshiping another god. They, they like it. That's the point. Verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Think about it. It's, you know, half a bathtub's worth. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. How are they going to do that? Because David's been dead for a while by this point. Oh, he had a son. This is about the son of David, Jesus. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Now scholars go round and round about what's happening in the, in the narrative of these first, this first and third chapter. And, and I want to move quickly through some of these issues. They, they are important and I do think we need to address them. But, but let me use the device of asking a rhetorical question and then answering it. Was, so here's the first one. Was Gomer a prostitute when Hosea married her? Probably, she could have just been, how do we say this, volunteering her services? We're, 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 whose kids are these, right? Are all three Hosea's? Well, the first one is, the second two absolutely are not. So whose kids are they? Well, does that even matter? They're not Hosea's, that's the point. The second two are not his. And is the woman in chapter three the same woman as chapter one, or is it Gomer? Yeah, I think so. At God's command, Hosea marries a woman he knows will be unfaithful, who is already proven to be so. Her heart didn't belong to her husband, and at least two of the three kids didn't belong to him either. Israel was fully engaged, Gomer especially as part of it, was fully engaged in the sinful culture of her day. 
And so just as Hosea's life was a parallel story to God's relationship with Israel, so were the names of his children. The first one is named Jezreel. This is the place where Israel's military might had been broken in the past and would be again. If you want to understand the impact of that, this would be like a, a, a Jewish person in, the, in Europe in the 1930s naming their child Auschwitz. And God commands Hosea to do this. That's what you're to name your child. If you know your history, you're like, what in the world? The second one, not loved. By the way, the Hebrew word lo there in their names means no or not. Not loved or no compassion. And that symbolized that, that God was not going to treat Israel in a special way like he had done before. He's going to let them be like any other nation. And, and eventually there comes a point where God's just had it with them and his judgment and his wrath comes on them for their sin. And the third child, lo ami, not my people, symbolized that God had rejected the nation of Israel because they had abandoned the covenant. They'd walked away from their relationship with God. And you need to understand, if you go back and you read the law, you read the law of Moses, nearly all of those promises are conditional. I will do all these things. You will have security. You will have blessing in the land if you obey me. Over and over and over again, those are conditional promises. I will do all this for you if you obey me. Now here's something worth noting. Right? The shock in this text is not that Gomer was unfaithful. It's how. The word translated adulteress is the female form of a word that generally is used about men, adulterer. And it generally refers to the infidelity of men. It's the same one in the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The implication here is, is that she was not seduced. She was not captured and sold into sexual slavery. She chose that. She went looking for it. And even more shocking, both to us and the original audience, is that Hosea still loved her. He endured the, the shame of the slave market to buy back his unfaithful wife. God commanded Hosea to track her down and bring her back into his house. Did you see chapter 3, verse 2? Go to the market, buy her back, literally redeem her. Can you imagine what that would have been like for him? Can you imagine the battle in his heart between the shame of having to do what he was commanded to do and he just wants to hang his head in shame but he has to keep it up. He has to keep looking for her to find her in the market so that he can buy her back. And this war that's going on in his heart as, as he's trying to obey God and, and dealing with the shame of this. He had to purchase his own wife. Her pimp sold her. Can you see him walking through the slave market, looking for her, tears streaming from his eyes? And can you imagine someone walking up to Hosea in the slave market and saying, hey, Hosea, chin up, brother. God won't give you more than you can handle. He would have punched him in the name of the Lord, right? And the dude would have deserved it, you know, pop right in the mouth. Like, I hope you can handle a left jab and a right hook, you know. junk it's junk so where do we get this junk theology of God won't give you more than you can handle it's at best a misunderstanding 
and at worst, I think more skeptical or cynical believers would say a deliberate twisting or lie of the enemy of 1 Corinthians 10.13. Look at this with me. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. There it is. There's the phrase. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, there are a couple implications of this. Um, One is that God will never let you face a temptation that you could not possibly resist. That's a deep comfort. Two, every temptation that you've ever fallen to was one God thought you could get through with his help and the Holy Spirit. Ouch. That's tough. That's hard. It's true, but it's hard. But it is a, a, a misunderstanding or a twisting of that verse to say that God will never give you more than you can handle. That is not what that verse says. Nowhere does the Bible promise that God won't give you more than you can handle. Actually, it seems to promise the opposite. Paul writes to the same church later in 2 Corinthians 1.8, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. Now, you need to understand Asia in the first century is not Asia now. Asia in the first century is modern-day Turkey, okay? We were under great pressure. That's a key word there. Far beyond our ability to endure So that, and the word so that there indicates that there is a cause and relationship um, dynamic in play. The word so that is a marker of cause or result. He says, so that we despaired of life itself. What Paul says about his team in verse 8 is that literally to an extreme degree beyond their strength, they were burdened, weighed down. That's the word pressure there. So much so they thought they were going to die. Does that sound like God won't give you more than you can handle? Shake your head no. Here's what I'm telling you today. Here's the big idea. God absolutely will give you more than you can handle on your own. But you are not on your own. So what do we do when it feels like life really is more than we can handle? What do we do when when we kind of maybe feel like Hosea? (laughs) Like, God, I can't do this. Well, there are a couple things you should definitely not do, and there are two things you absolutely should do, right? So a couple don'ts and a couple do's. I'll start with the negative ones first, not because they're, you know, less important than, than the positive ones. I just, you know, get the bad news out of the way first, right? Uh, all four of these are of equal weight. Right? And you may need to come back to one or another at another time in your life. But here's the first, a couple don'ts. Number one, don't blame God for keeping promises he never made. Don't blame God for keeping promises he never made. You ever had someone misquote you to your face about something you said? Like, they're like, you said, you know, fill in the blank or whatever. And you're like, no, I didn't. And it's not a matter of you not remembering. Like, you remember. Like, I know. I know. That's not what I said. I didn't say that. That's really frustrating, isn't it? When someone misquotes you to your face. Well, guess what? God doesn't like it either. (laughs) The people are trying to hold you accountable for something you didn't say. And I think a lot of our junk theology comes from people who are misquoting God. 
And this is more than just ripping a verse out of context, right? This is more than just yanking something out of the place where it belongs. For example, um, sometimes you'll hear a bunch of Christian guys are in the weight room at the gym and they're lifting and some guy's trying to set a new personal record, right, on the bench press. And someone's like, hey man, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That is not what that means. That's not what that's about, you know? No, you're going to get crushed by that thing because you know what you're doing. Um... No, this is more than taking it out of context. This is getting the words wrong. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. It's not even remotely the same thing as God won't give you more than you can handle. You just flat misquote, you got it wrong. And the point is, you don't get to hold God accountable for saying something he never said. Don't blame God for not keeping promises he never made. You want the truth? Cancer is more than you can handle. So is infidelity. So is caring for an elderly parent with dementia. So is relational rejection from your children. So is the death of a spouse and the failure of a business that wipes out your savings and a prodigal child and 462 other struggles. And in the midst of our pain, we want to find a reason why. Like, why am I going through this? Why is this happening to me? That's normal. Do you think Hosea didn't ask that question into the dark at night when his wife was not in the bed with him, when she was gone in the home of another man? Do you think Hosea didn't wrestle with this? Why, God, why? Even if he came to understand after 40 years of of preaching God's message of come back to me, come back to me, come back to me, Even if he did, I don't think he got, he, and I don't know that he did necessarily, but he never got to see the fulfillment of everything God promised him. All of these promises in Hosea, and if you were to keep reading, you would see Jesus all over this book. All of these promises, he died hundreds of years before they happened. But he was faithful. And that's the second thing you absolutely should not do when it feels like life is more than you can handle. Don't rebel just because you don't understand. Don't rebel just because you don't understand. In a quip attributed to Mother Teresa, she said, I know God won't give me anything I can't handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. (laughs) I don't know if she actually said that or not. That's not the point. The point is, I don't think any of the biblical people that I've mentioned today, Job, Joseph, Hagar, Tamar, Hannah, Elijah, Jonah, Jeremiah, Hosea, or Paul, understood every reason why they suffered. I don't know that they ever got to see the whole picture. (laughs) What I'm telling you is that not understanding the why is not a good enough reason to justify rebellion against God. See, we got a lot of people in our world right now who have asked the question why and not gotten an answer that satisfied them and they just gave up and walked away. And what I'm telling you is that Hosea's story tells us that not knowing why is not a good enough reason to walk away from your relationship with God. I've heard the analogy this way. Maybe this word picture will help you. If you've ever seen the, the backside of a beautiful tapestry, it's a mess. 
There's stuff going everywhere and the colors are blotchy and it's weird and you're looking at it and you're like, what in the world? And someone made the, made the connection. They said, I think our lives will be like that. And on this side of heaven, all we get to see is the back of it. And it's messy and there's stuff going everywhere and it's blotchy and I don't, it doesn't make any sense. And then when we get to glory, God's going to spin the thing around and we'll be like, oh, now I get it. Not understanding the why is not a good enough reason to rebel against God. He is God, you are not. I don't know, maybe Mother Teresa is right. Maybe an uptick in hardship is proof that God trusts us, but it's not a reason to rebel. So what should you do? Let me give you a couple do's. There are two very positive things that we can do when it feels like life is too much for us. You might, you might be like Moses right now. We tend to think of Moses as just being like, like just success all over the place. Man, that guy struggled. It was, it was, I mean, yeah, he grew up in a palace. He grew up as the adopted son of a king, but whoo, man, then he had to deal with Israel. We all know how much trouble that can be, right? If you know your Bible history. Like in, in Psalm 90, verse 13, Moses says, relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Stop it, God. Make it stop. Stop the world, Lord. I want to get off. (laughs) I prayed that prayer. When I was in college, I worked at a sign company and was in an accident. A billboard fell on me while we were building it. I have a bulging disc in my lower back. And so part of my journey in fitness was not just to lose weight, but to keep the core strong to protect that. And um, one time early on, this is, I don't know, 11, 12 years ago, it, 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 it bit hard. And I remember standing in our bathroom in our Charleston house with my, just gripping the, the, the frame of the door in agony. I couldn't sit, I couldn't stand, I couldn't lay, nothing. And I'm screaming, and I, I remember praying this prayer, make it stop, God! Make it stop! What do you do when you feel like this? Let me tell you, two things. Do hold him to every promise he's given you. Hold him to every promise he's given you. You, and I'm, I'm pointing at you intentionally, you. So what do you mean? Well, if you grew up in church like I did, you might have learned a song about this in Sunday school, right? Every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line. You heard that song? It'd be better if it was actually true. It's not. Not Every promise in this book is written to you. Now let me be clear. They are all true. They are all true. All of God's promises have come or will come true. That is not up for debate. But they are not all to you. Let me give you one example. Deuteronomy 28, 8-11 promises that if you obey God... He will bless you with children. Deuteronomy 28 flat out says, if you are faithful to the covenant, God will give you children. He will make your womb fruitful. So what do you say to a Christian couple who is obedient to God, who's living a a righteous life to the best of their ability with the help of the Holy Spirit, and they really want to have kids, and they can't? 
Is God not faithful to his word? No. No. You're taking a promise that was given to the nation of Israel and you're applying it to yourself uncritically. Because Jesus completed that covenant. We're not under it anymore. And there are some things from the old covenant that he renewed in the new one. In fact, in some cases, in the Sermon on the Mount especially, he even intensified them. But not everything in the old covenant applies to you. Not every promise in this book is given to you. They're all true. They will all come true. God's word does not break. But not every promise is written to you. Here's the thing. We don't need to misapply promises to others when there are so many great ones that are given to us. Right? God promised that if we repent of our sin and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, that we will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The God of the universe will come dwell in us. That is his word to you. It is a promise to you. God promised that his divine power is everything we need for life and godliness. There's no secret sauce. If you're a Christian, you've got everything you need to live a righteous life in Christ Jesus. He promised you that he would never leave you. He would never forsake you. He would be with you always to the very end of the age. He promised that you would have a place next to him in glory. You don't need the junk. Look at the promises that are given to you. Thomas Goodwin, the English Puritan, speaks to this, and he really pushes it to the limit. He says, when you pray, you can go to God and say what's on your heart and claim his promise. In fact, you can demand he be faithful to his promise. Sue him for it. Sue him for it. Don't leave him alone. Pester him with his own promise. Now, Some of you are like, Casey, I couldn't pray that way ever. Like, that's just not me. And and you might be tempted to go, well, that's this modern self-help stuff. No, that was written about 400 years ago. Like, (laughs) it's like, oh, I I can't pray like that. That's just too bold for me. Okay, what about this? What about praying with an open Bible on your lap? That when you pray, I don't know about you, I got red in my Bible. You just point right to it. It's Jesus, you said this. You, you, you said you'd do this. Do it. <laughs> I need you to do it for me. You said it. I'm claiming it. I'm holding you to your word. That's okay. That's good. It's a good thing. It's like, <laughs> dads, you know this. If you're a dad or maybe if you're a mom, like you give your kids some advice and then every now and then you get the great joy of hearing them repeat it to somebody else. And it's like, ah, they got it. They got it. I love that. Our father loves it when his children speak his words back to him. So when it feels like life is too much, you go back to the word of God and you hold him to every promise he's given you. There's one more thing you need to do. You need to trust his love and obey his word. Do trust his love and obey his word. Hosea is one of the best examples of all this in sacred history. I'm sure he must have struggled to obey what God told him to do. Wouldn't you? I mean, like, if God came to you in a vision and said, I want you to do this really hard thing, like, wouldn't that be a struggle? Like, I don't know about you, but I think I would ask for some ID. Like, I'm going to make sure this is God telling me this and not just the the pizza I had late last night. Like, 
There's no indication, though, of his struggle in the book that bears his name. I'm sure he must have. I mean, he's human. I would, you would. But there's no, there's no picture of that here. Hosea obeys God, and he trusts that the Lord's love for his people, of whom he is a part, is sufficient for him. One of the best apologists and one of my favorite speakers in the world is Dr. John Lennox. He's a professor of mathematics at Oxford University, one of the greatest defenders of the faith in the modern age. Brilliant man, absolutely brilliant man. And he wrote a book called Against the Flow, and in that book he tells a story about uh, an encounter he had with a man who served, who did time in a Siberian gulag camp for the crime of teaching his children about the Bible. And the guy's relating his story of what he went through in this Siberian prison camp in, in far uh, north-central Russia. And, and he, Lennox is just like, you can, he's struggling to take it in. And the guy says, uh, you couldn't take that, could you? And Lennox stumbles out like, no, I'm, I'm sure you're right. And the man grinned and said, nor could I. I was a man who fainted at the sight of his own blood, let alone that of others. But what I discovered in the camp was this. Look. God does not help us to face theoretical situations, but real ones. Like you, I couldn't imagine how one could cope in the gulag. But once there, I found that God met me, exactly as Jesus had promised his disciples when he was preparing them for victimization and persecution. And Lennox adds, we can be confident then that the Lord will give us a sufficient amount of grace to handle whatever comes our way, whenever it comes our way, and not necessarily a moment before. Did you hear me today? God absolutely will give you more than you can handle on your own. But you are not on your own. God promises his people in Deuteronomy 31.8, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And then the writer of Hebrews reaffirms this in Hebrews 13.5 and says, yes, that promise that was given to Israel is also given to the new Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. And we can lay hold of that and we can claim he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Jesus himself says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so because we are not on our own, because he is with us always, we can trust him. We can obey his word even when it feels like life is too much. Listen to me. You don't need junk theology to salve your wounded soul when the God of the universe is with you. See, if you were to keep reading Hosea, you would see over and over again that God made promises to his people that he kept. And he has made promises to you that he will keep. So love and obey him when you feel like life is too much for you. Your struggles might be too much for you, but they are not too much for God. He is with you. He is if you're in Christ. I don't know, maybe there's somebody here in this room today who hasn't made that decision. You've not yet determined that Jesus is the Lord of your life. You've not yet yielded to him and I love you so I'm going to tell you the truth even if it's uncomfortable he is not with you in the way we've been talking about but he can be don't 
walk out of this room without God being with you in that way, to live inside you. He promised you. He told you that if you repent of your sin and confess Christ as Lord, believe in him, have faith in him, and are baptized, that you will receive his spirit, and he will be with you in a way that you've never experienced before. So in just a second, we're going to stand and sing a song together. If you never made the decision to follow Jesus, to confess him as Savior and Lord, repent of your sins and be baptized, I would invite you to do that today. Have him be with you in this way. And I know that some of you in here are bearing stuff that is more than you can handle on your own. And maybe you want someone to pray with you. Our next step room is going to be open. Pastor Fred and myself and other elders and and our, our other pastoral staff will be down front to pray with you. We'd love to do that. If you're here today and you feel like, I just, I can't carry this another moment longer, can I help carry it with you? (laughs) Can your brothers and sisters help carry it with you? You're not supposed to carry it on your own. It's not God's plan for you. It's not what he wants for you. Can we come alongside you in prayer and carry it with you? That invitation is also extended to you as we sing. I would invite you, if you need prayer for something, if it's just too heavy to carry on your own, can we help? We want to pray with you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together. And you respond as God leads you today.